Hi, and welcome to the Palliators Podcast. I'm your host, Hospice and Palliative Medicine Fellow, Dr. Tara Kateen. This podcast is for healthcare professionals who want to become more comfortable and confident in caring for chronically ill and terminally ill patients. With the help of the fellows who work alongside me in Columbia, South Carolina, we hope to educate and promote palliative care one podcast at a time. We're so glad to have you here. We are so happy you could join us today. Let us start off with a brief introduction to palliative care. You know, up until the late 1990s, the phrases palliative care and hospice care were interchangeable. Over the past couple of decades, though, palliative care has taken on a life of its own, such that all hospice is palliative care, but not all palliative care is hospice. The primary goal of palliative care, both hospice and non-hospice palliative care, is to relieve or prevent suffering and to help people live as fully as possible. The hallmark of palliative care is an interdisciplinary team that includes physicians, nurses, social workers, and chaplains, in addition to the patient. It really includes anybody who's important to the care of the patient. This also means pharmacists, nurses' aides, and the patient's loved ones can be included as part of that team. In hospice, there's also a bereavement counselor who is a big part of that group. Let's take a minute to talk about hospice. Some people are surprised to learn that hospice is not a place. It, it's more of a philosophy or an approach to caring for someone facing the end of his or her life. Hospice, as we think of it today, originated out of England with Cicely Saunders. She was a nurse who became a social worker and eventually became a physician at the age of 39. This was part of the path she took in efforts to relieve the pain and the suffering that is generally associated with dying. She is considered the founder of the modern hospice movement when she founded St. Christopher's Hospice in London in the 1960s. She developed a concept of total pain, which consists of physical and non-physical pain. So much of dealing with chronic and terminal illness involves psychosocial and spiritual elements. She created pain relief regimens that we still use today. Also, she believed that patients and those who love them needed to be looked at together. Their perspectives may be different, but they're taking the journey together. So in hospice and palliative medicine, we consider the patient and their loved ones as a unit and always try to focus on the ability to live as fully and as comfortably as possible. Hospice for adults is a little different compared to hospice for children. For adults, it is for those with a life expectancy of six months or less and who are ready to let their terminal illness take its normal course. Hospice for children is for those who have a life expectancy of six months or less if their illness follows its normal course. But children may continue to receive disease-modifying therapy while on hospice. This is referred to as concurrent care. In the mid to late 1990s, it became apparent that people were being referred to hospice very late in the trajectory of their illnesses. In fact, Nationally, bereavement surveys consistently revealed that loved ones complained that they wished hospice would have been offered earlier to the patient. 
they were typically admitted so close to death that they could not receive all the benefits of hospice services. There was also the thought that people with chronic illnesses should not need to wait until they were in their last months of life to have the pain and suffering managed. So non-hospice palliative care was created for patients who were either not emotionally ready for hospice or who medically were not ready. But then one day they were expected to be appropriate for hospice. This could offer a more seamless transition when the time for hospice arises. Palliative care recognizes that patients are more than their diseases. It's not the patient in room 303 or the lung cancer in the emergency department. It takes a holistic approach to caring for people. Using the interdisciplinary team, they can have the needs of their minds, their bodies, and their spirits addressed. And each person is different. We need to listen to our patients and their families to learn what's important to them and important to those who love them. Each experience is unique, and the medical therapies and the treatment plans should reflect their values. You know, I get asked time and again why I would want to work in such a depressing field. But I, I don't find it depressing. Most of the people I've worked with don't find it depressing either. In fact, for the most part, we find it rewarding. That's not to say that some situations don't make us sad, because they do. But I've seen firsthand patients who have suffered greatly with unmanaged pain and other symptoms, and to me, that's more depressing. And when you are helping people feel as good as they can feel, given the situations that they're dealing with, or help them find meaning in their situation, I find there's so much good in that, and that's why I find it's rewarding. Well, I've gotten off topic. I wanted, I wanted to teach a little bit about palliative care, and the other fellows and I had come across an article from the journal The Hospitalist. It's called 10 Things Hospitalists Need to Know About Palliative Care by Larry Beresford. You can find a link to it on our website at thepalliators.com. We found good information in this article, and we thought it could provide good information for this first podcast. We've already touched on the first of these 10 things. The first is that palliative care is not synonymous with end-of-life care. This might be a good time to remember that hospice is for people who have a life expectancy of six months or less if the illness runs its normal course. Usually at this time, the focus of all the care is on providing maximal comfort without trying to prolong life. On the other hand, palliative care can be provided at any time along the trajectory or continuum of the illness from diagnosis until death. We help to find what is most important to patients and their families to help them live the lives they want to live. Palliative care is provided in conjunction with life-prolonging care so that people can live their best lives in spite of their illnesses. Palliative care teams find out the patient's goals for living, relieve their distressing symptoms, and support them with their psychosocial and spiritual needs. The second point in the article is patients with serious illness can benefit from palliative care. I bet a lot of you already figured that out. Yes, palliative medicine 
is actually a medical subspecialty. It's one of the newer specialties, and one year of fellowship training can be pursued following residency. The primary specialty can be one of 10 different fields. For example, at our fellowship program, there are three of us. I am an internist, Dr. Nancy Hart Wicker is a family medicine physician, and Dr. Katie Mallow is a pediatrician. But people who complete emergency medicine, OB, psychiatry, or anesthesiology residencies, among others, can also be eligible for hospice and palliative medicine fellowship training. One of the things that has become apparent during our fellowship training is just how much value that comes from providing palliative care, and the earlier the better. We find that we provide an extra layer of support with symptom management at all stages of an illness, and this goes a long way in helping our patients and their loved ones. There's a New England Journal article from 2010 called Early Palliative Care for Patients with Metastatic Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer. This article showed that patients who received early palliative care integrated with standard cancer treatment not only had improved quality of life, but they also had a longer life, about two months longer. I think that's really impressive. But back to our article about the 10 things that hospitalists need to know about palliative care, Dr. Joseph Rotella was quoted as saying, Doctors should not apologize when referring to a service that has been proven to provide value. We should be happy to recommend it early and often. Another point is that palliative care is available for children and their families. The article brings up that in 2013, the American Academy of Pediatrics developed a pediatric palliative care and hospice care policy. Our pediatric palliator, Dr. Katie Mallow, views herself as an advocate for patients and their families. It's based on listening to the patients and understanding their goals of care so that she can best guide them through the wilderness, as she calls it, of the complicated medical system and to try to give a voice to the voiceless. Sometimes the child's voice can get lost in the chatter and sometimes even lost with their parents. You know, even in the adult world, we have to be advocates for our patients. Which, which really brings us to the next point to talk about from this article. It's that the palliative care role is not to talk patients and their families out of treatment. Rather than aiming to get them to forego life-sustaining therapies or get them to become DNR, we're there to help them find the interventions that match their values and preferences. This article touches on how palliative care professionals are skilled at communicating bad news. I think of it as really communicating serious or important news because not all news we have to give is bad. And it's not always easy, even for people who do it every day. I find that just being willing to start the conversation is sometimes all that's really needed to get going in the right direction for our patients. The next point in the article for us to mention is the cost of providing care. Palliative care saves money, but it's not because there are no interventions being provided. It's because the treatment interventions provided are in line with the patient's goals and values. In brief, they help the patients receive goal-concordant or goal-directed care. Palliative care tends to be cost savings or cost-neutral, 
because it helps to provide the right care at the right time in the right location. Next, I think many of us are familiar with the Choosing Wisely program. This program was an initiative by the Board of Internal Medicine. The board invited medical societies to identify five treatments that should be questioned by physicians and patients because of the lack of supporting research evidence. You can find a link to the Choosing Wisely website in our show notes at thepalliators.com. AAHPM, that is the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, participated in Choosing Wisely. Their first recommendation was that if a patient with a serious illness has physical, psychological, social, or spiritual issues, do not delay referring for palliative care, even if the patient is still pursuing disease-directed treatment. Other suggestions were not to recommend feeding tubes in patients with advanced dementia and not leaving implantable defibrillators activated if they were not consistent with the patient's goals and not to recommend more than a single fraction of palliative radiation for an uncomplicated painful bone metastasis. So as my co-fellow Dr. Nancy Hart Wicker says, we need to make sure we are choosing wisely, folks. So this article also talks about one of our main procedures. You may think it's funny to call a family meeting a procedure, but that's what it is in the field of palliative medicine. It may not be a central line or a surgical procedure, but it's just as crucial. Sometimes family meetings may be uncomfortable because there may be people that you haven't met yet, or you may be new to the case. You may not feel comfortable providing a prognosis or breaking bad news or giving important news. During these meetings, we can review the medical information and know just what the patient understands. Sometimes these meetings are short, but they're usually lengthy. Still, though, through these family meetings, we can help patients and families make the decisions that help meet their goals for their treatment and how they want to live. We can share in that time burden with the primary provider. Sometimes we like to bring the primary provider into those family meetings because they can generally add a lot to the discussion. Most have had a lot of on-the-job experience with some basic palliative care as well. We're coming to the end of the podcast, and I hope that you'll find it to be a good resource for you in helping you to provide the best care possible for your patients. I think some of the topics we'll cover in the future will be communication skills, palliative care tips, pitfalls, and pearls, If there's anything that you would like us to cover, please find us at our website, thepalliators.com. That's thepalliators with an S dot com. You can send suggestions there and find show notes with links from this podcast. Before signing off, I'd like to end this podcast with a reflection. At our organization, a reflection is provided at every presentation. Today's reflection was provided to me by Dr. Wicker. It's from Margaret Wheatley. Be brave enough to start conversations that matter. And this concludes our podcast for today. Thank you for joining us. If you like today's podcast, please go to your iTunes app and leave us a review. And don't forget to go to thepalliators.com for show notes. And you can follow us on Twitter. Hope you can come back next time. Bye for now. Bye for now.